It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mar Mary and Martha, her sister. It was that Mary who had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And Father, we ask now as we continue to worship by opening the word of God as an act of worship towards you, believing that you are a God who speaks and that this is the way that you speak to us predominantly, Lord, through your inspired word. We ask, prepare us each accordingly that this time we spend together would be an opportunity where you can say to us something that we personally need to hear. Bless your word, prepare us, and speak to us by your spirit, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it may be true how Jesus at times handles our personal or maybe our family hardships surely may not always be how we expect him to. However, we typically find on the back end or ultimately in the bigger picture that it always is for the absolute best result overall. And that when things play out, and even if it takes all the way to eternity in the larger scheme of things, though Jesus may not have responded or handled something the way we thought he would have or even should have, we see that ultimately he knew what was best and accomplished that for all those involved. And I think that's really what we're going to find this week, next week, as we continue through John chapter 11 together. In this story, we find revealed Jesus responding to a family's hardship. If you draw your attention with me back to the first verse as we begin to look at this together, we're told there that a certain man was sick. It was Lazarus of Bethany, which was the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary, John wants us to know, who had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was now sick. So the story opens indicating to us that if you would kind of a recent tragedy has now invaded the family life of this particular uh, family that's referred to here in our text. And the intrusion is one of the immediate family members is sick. Not just sick, but with a life-threatening illness that more than likely is going to result in death. The family consisted of, according to the Bible, at least we're told, one brother and two sisters. A man named Lazarus and Martha and Mary, his two sisters. And from the accounts in the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can deduce that Jesus seemed to have kind of a special connection with this particular family that lived there in Bethany. Uh, we find on multiple occasions in the Bible where Jesus was visiting or lodging at this particular house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, in chapter uh, 11, verse 2 here, as we see John writing again, understand after all these events take place, wants to identify for us and for his readers 
that this was the home of Mary and Martha, particularly the specific Mary and Martha. And he refers even there to one of the occasions the Bible records for us where Jesus was in the home of this family and, and Mary had expressed her great devotion in worship, a humble act of worship by anointing Jesus' feet when he was there, it seems, teaching a Bible study in their home on one of the occasions she was visiting. We also read in our text that it was very evident to this family that Jesus loved them. They refer to it in verse 3. The Holy Spirit indicates it to us there in verse 5. So there was this very... It seems unique friendship connection, a bond that Jesus had formed with this particular family. Perhaps it was a place he liked to stop by on his way up to Jerusalem on occasion. It says that they lived in Bethany, verse 1, and Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, at this time, we know from our recent chapter, Jesus is quite a distance away from Bethany where this family lives. In fact, he's over, it seems, on the other side of the Jordan at this particular time. And it's during this time, unexpectedly now, a problem or tragedy strikes this family without any forewarning. And that's typically how tragedies come. You usually don't get an advance notice you usually don't get a personal request if you're interested for a crisis. Please dial the following number and we can schedule one. That's usually not how a crisis comes about. Typically, like in this situation, it just tends to come upon us. It says here the particular crisis of this family is that Lazarus, the brother, was very sick. And not just sick, but terminally ill, meaning that that sickness he was dealing with clearly was life-threatening in the near future, barring a miraculous intervention that brought some kind of healing to his particular body. The point I want you to see is that life for this family transitioned from semi-normal to hurricane force storm. This is the idea here. Life somewhat semi-normal, and then all of a sudden there comes upon them this hurricane-force storm battering them with a crisis, and perhaps you can relate to that kind of experience in your own life or your own family, where life maybe has been somewhat, and I use the word purposely, semi-normal, because none of us are normal, and none of your families are not dysfunctional. I have a dysfunctional family. So does everyone. That started with Adam and Eve. But life's somewhat semi-normal, and then in the midst of semi-normal, without asking your permission and without warning, right, all of a sudden, some form of tragedy invades the family. Some crisis or hardship in some form. Maybe it's something like this. Maybe someone gets very sick. Cancer or some major health issue comes to pass. Maybe someone is, is facing a life-threatening illness. Maybe someone's hurt badly in an accident and is on life support or something horrific like that. Or, or maybe even it's the death of a loved one. Or maybe a crisis in some other form, some relational crisis, a breakdown in the home, or, or maybe it's a financial crisis, whatever it may be. Remember here, this family loved the Lord. This is a family who knew the Lord and loved the Lord. But yet still, this thing, this crisis, this hardship enters into their lives, though they knew and loved the Lord. The reason, very simple. We live in a fallen and cursed version of this world because sin has entered in among humanity. 
And as a result of that, everything is always failing. Everything is always breaking down. Things fall apart and therefore sickness and suffering and hardship and pain and sorrow and tears and death are a part of the cycle of living on this planet in the condition in which things are in. And whether, listen, whether you reject the Lord or whether you receive the Lord, whether you are a follower of Jesus or someone who wants nothing to do with Jesus, whether you live completely right and righteous or whether you live completely wrong, the bottom line is this, trials, tragedy, struggles, suffering in various forms and measures are a part of the journey through this life. And no one, no one is immune from such things. No one is exempt from times of hardship or tragedies or trials or difficulties. In fact, Jesus himself, who is God in the flesh, is going to say in the 16th chapter of John, in this world, you will have tribulation, hardships, problems, struggles. There's a lot of other things he didn't say you will have in this world. But one thing that's a promise, he says, it's a part of life. In this world, you will have tribulation the important thing is how do we respond during the storm when we have to navigate our way through it because there's really only two ways at that point you can navigate your way through the storm by struggling it alone and straining at the oars or you can navigate through the storm with jesus's assistance by calling upon the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you to help me as I go through this storm. And also, this is important, how the Lord can use hard things, you'll see, for his higher purposes and to accomplish greater things beyond the present circumstances that may be difficult. Look at verse 3, what happens when this crisis strikes the family? Verse 3 says, therefore, because Lazarus was sick, the sisters sent word to Jesus. It says, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So when the crisis comes, knowing that they can't fix it humanly, knowing that they can't handle the weight of it, they respond very wisely by doing what? Quickly informing Jesus about what is going on, talking to the Lord about it. Why? Because they trust that Jesus cares and they trust that Jesus has the ability to help them in what they're dealing with and what they're facing. Whenever a hardship enters our life, you know what priority number one ought to be? Talk to the Lord about it. Communicate to Jesus. Bring it before his throne. Reach out to the Lord and share with him from your heart what's going on, trusting that he cares. And that he has the power to do things about that that you and no one else humanly possibly can. This is a wise thing to do. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your care, your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. Psalm eighteen six says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Psalm 86, verse 7, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you. For you will answer me. Sometimes other people don't answer us in the day of our calamity. Sometimes in our distress, we want to call the pharmacist to give us something to calm us down. 
When Jesus can give us peace and help us and, and enable us to be able to handle what we're going through and navigate our way through it. So these sisters very wisely, they sent word to Jesus, a message. Why? Because he was quite a distance away. So it seems they would have had to send a messenger to him. And look at the simplicity, verse 3 with me, of their message that they share with Jesus. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that communication with Jesus, I think, presents a great example of prayer and how maybe we should pray in times of hardship and crisis. What a beautiful example the Bible gives to us here. What do they do in their prayer, if you would, in the midst of hardship and crisis as they turn to the Lord and talk to him about it? Well, first of all, take notice here. They acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's a smart thing to do. Not only in prayer generally, but especially in the midst of a hardship or crisis that you remember and you acknowledge Jesus as Lord. What does Lord mean? Ruler over all. The one who controls everything. The one who has power to do anything. And in these times when we're dealing with hard, difficult, overwhelming things, those are the occasions when we need to remember the Lordship of Jesus. We're not just calling up a friend or calling up some... We're calling upon the Lord who controls all, who rules all, who has power over all to do things above and beyond our human capacities. And it's good to remember that when we call upon the Lord. Secondly, in this, if you would picture a prayer, what else do they do? They reflect upon Jesus' love for them. They reflect upon Jesus' love. Lord, he whom you love is sick. That's, that's a good thing to do. When you're in a hardship, when you're in a difficulty, those are the occasions. It's really helpful to reflect on the love of the Lord, especially when it's really hard to know, Lord, this is hard and I don't understand and I don't know how it's, but Lord, thank you that I know that you love me and that you love my family and because of that, I can have confidence that that, that you're able to do things and that you want to help because you care, because you love. And I think remembering the love of the Lord is a good thing to do in these times. And thirdly, draw your attention to this. You notice in their comments to Jesus, they don't demand that Jesus acts in a specific way. They don't, if you would here, inform Jesus what he should do. They just inform Jesus what's going on. They just share their heart with the Lord. We don't find them here other than pouring out their honest and sincere concern about the situation, suggesting or demanding how Jesus ought to act or what he ought to do. They're not even giving their expectation and telling Jesus what he should do and what they expect that he would do. They're just saying, Lord, you love him and we just want to let you know. We just want to pour out our hearts. And I look at this and I think, boy, what a really wise example. That demonstrates faith in Jesus' lordship. That they're not telling Jesus how to respond in their situation. That's an important part, can I say, of us maturing spiritually. And of us maturing even in our prayer lives. That we understand it is good, wise, and helpful to pour out our heart to the Lord and to call upon the Lord, but that we don't suggest our expectations to the Lord. That we don't demand that the Lord act in a certain way. Because I'll tell you, when we do that... That's a real quick way to prepare ourselves sometimes for disappointment. But sometimes his ways are higher than our ways, the Bible says. 
So this is a beautiful example of maturity and wisdom and prayer. Well, as Jesus receives this word sent to him about Lazarus's illness from the sisters, look at verse four. It says, when Jesus heard, he said to them, here's his response he sends back, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus assures the sisters that this sickness that Lazarus is dealing with would not end, pay attention, in just death alone. As if somehow he would die, it would all just seem vain and profitless, and if somehow nothing worthwhile would come out of this horrible hardship they're dealing with, but rather Jesus wants to assure them this hardship, he's saying, will directly be used for the glory of God. He's letting them know that this sickness would become a platform for Jesus to be glorified in the eyes of people. It will become a stage, if you would, where Jesus is going to work in such a way, and we'll see as we look at the rest of the chapter, where he is the Son of God would be glorified through this particular hardship through this tragedy and trial. Ultimately, on the back end of this experience, we're going to see this man, Lazarus, does die. He's buried and had been buried for days, and then Jesus is going to come and miraculously exercise the power of God to raise this man back from the dead and to demonstrate for God's glory and for the glory of the Son of God the power over death and the power over the eternal realm and dimension to glorify God and to cause people to recognize more about Jesus. And can I just say, how awesome is it not that even when we personally go through a hardship, or maybe even at times if our family has to endure some hard things, again, maybe sickness or suffering or a family breakdown or some crisis or even death, that the things that we endure that are hard can beautifully and strategically be used for the glory of God. And that God has a way in the midst of his superintending over all things to use even the hardest, most bitter, most difficult things that we endure in this life and to use them in a way to reveal the power of Jesus and to reveal the love of Jesus to people in the midst of it, and to do things in a way where ultimately he and his son Jesus are glorified. And can I just say to you this morning, as a person, as an individual just like you, and certainly as well as a pastor who interacts with people's lives and has, uh, since I've been pastoring since 1999, I have seen this transpire so many times. Doesn't mean the hardship didn't come doesn't mean the sickness didn't happen or the death process or some crisis or family breakdown or struggle or loss of a job or all the different things that happen that are hard in this world. But I have seen this happen where it happened and the glory of God was lifted up in the midst of it and Jesus was glorified through it. And something wonderful came as a result. Hardship becomes the stage to be used effectively for the causes of the Lord. I think of the life of Job in the scriptures. Here's Job in the Bible. This guy's world falls apart. He loses family members. He loses his economic status. He loses his health. And what does he do? He blesses the name of the Lord. And he becomes a testimony to stand up and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. 
and I won't curse God foolishly. And God uses it for his glory through Job's life. I think of Paul the Apostle. In Philippians chapter 1, as Paul's facing the death penalty there for preaching the gospel, Paul says this, My earnest expectation, as he's facing the death penalty, and my hope is that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul says, if I live, I'm going to live for the glory of Christ. And if I die, I pray my death brings much glory to Jesus in the process. Hey, I want to encourage you this morning. Perhaps you're facing something very difficult individually or maybe in your family. It's a very, very hard time. Can I just encourage you in the midst of struggling through that? Take heart because it could just be that some of this sovereignly is being allowed for the glory of God's good purposes and that God isn't going to just allow this to happen in vain and, and just seems purposeless on top of the suffering, but that God could glorify Jesus through this. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, don't think it strange when you endure trials, but glorify God in the matter. Oh, Lord, I, this trial, it's so hard. Why, don't get caught up in why, why is this Get caught up in what do I do? How can I glorify you in this matter, Lord? I can't change it. I don't like it. But how can I glorify you in the matter? That is an effective way. And here Jesus sends back word. This will be for the glory of God and the Son of God would be glorified through it. Verse 5 goes on to say, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Then uniquely, verse 6, look at this. So when he heard that he was sick, this sounds strange, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So notice, the love of the Lord, more than likely, I would have to say, may have been misunderstood by what Jesus did, not only in allowing this to happen, but in the way that he responds to the situation here. Notice the Holy Spirit in verse 5 wants to emphasize the clear fact that Jesus loved this family. God doesn't want us to misunderstand. So the Holy Spirit wants to make it very clear that regardless of their circumstances, the situations, that these experiences and these events had nothing to do with the extent of the love of the Lord for these individuals and this family. And today, let me just say, it may go without saying, I hope you know, I hope you believe and will accept no matter what you're dealing with, Jesus loves you and he loves your family and don't ever allow the difficulties of life, the confusing experiences, the hardships, the struggles, even your current circumstances or family hardships, don't ever let those things be the gauge of the extent of Jesus's love for you because that will always confuse you. Let the reality of the truth be this when you experience things that you don't know, rest upon what you do know. And you know what you can know? That as sure as that sun is going to rise tomorrow, Jesus loves you. And he loves your family. And that love is never going to change. That love is going to endure. Now, as the Holy Spirit informs us, Jesus loved this family. We're then told there in verse 6, however, when he heard the news about the sickness... He stayed, is that true? He stayed two more days 
in the place where he was. You imagine that was probably hard to process and, and understand when this all is unfolding here in this situation. Maybe even his disciples are, are looking upon it. Doesn't that seem kind of out of character for this situation anyway? We would expect to read there, our rational and logical mind, that Jesus instantly responded, right? That he would say something to the disciples like, quick, pack it up, boys. We, we need to get to Bethany as soon as possible. This is, this is Lazarus, my good friend, and Mary and Martha, and, and this is a hardship, and they're asking for our help. We would expect, surely even because it's a considerable distance away, that Jesus would have said or done something like that, yet the Bible records that he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Otherwise stated, Jesus chose to delay in coming to their request. Now, I have to ask, because I'm an honest person in this sense, why, if Jesus loves them, would he delay in his response? Why, if Jesus loves them, would he delay especially coming to help? Sometimes the reason is the love for Jesus in our lives does not always reasonably line up with the delay of Jesus in responding to our situation. Or in the way that Jesus answers our prayer or request of him, where we then find ourselves saying, Lord, if you love me, why this? Or Lord, if you love me, why are you delaying in this situation? Lord, if you love me, why are you delaying in acting? Please hear me. His delay does not indicate that he doesn't love us. Because verse 5 wants us to know he loved them. His delays do not indicate he doesn't love us. Don't be confused there. Be careful. His delay always indicates there's some purpose or higher reason, and it just may take a little time to see it and understand it. For them, it's not till the end of the chapter. But sometimes his delays just indicate the glory of God is attached to this, and he has intentions and purposes. The question is, is am I willing to endure through a hard experience Trusting that, Lord, my comfort and my preference, I guess really isn't the top priority on this planet, but maybe your glory is. Maybe spiritual things are. Maybe eternal things are. Maybe someone else seeing the glory of God through my hardship and them recognizing, wow, look at Jesus. And their attention being drawn to Jesus through my hardship as the stage for that, that that could actually be a higher purpose than just having my experience worked out the way I'd like it to. Well, verse 7, let's go on. It says, then after this, two days, he said to his disciples, well, let us go to Judea again. So Jesus now indicates to the disciples he's ready to cross back over the Jordan and head over to the area of Judea. Remember, which is the southern area of Israel where both Jerusalem and Bethany, this town, would be located. Verse 8, the disciples hearing this say, uh, Rabbi, lately the Jews have, uh, remember, sought to stone you and you're going up to that area again. So the disciples hearing Jesus now wants to go, they begin to fear for their safety. They remind Jesus there in verse 8, uh, Lord, you do remember last time we were in Jerusalem? Remember the whole circle of sharks ready to devour you? The stones, they were... You remember that whole situation? Remember it was, it was like a death threat, Lord? And are you sure you want to go back up there again? Why would you want to make yourself vulnerable and, and risk your life? But again, human reasoning always defaults to what? Self-preservation. 
That, that's what human, human reasoning never wants to accept that sometimes walking in the will of God may involve a little bit of personal risk. But if God's in control, we can trust him. But here they have this natural fear. They're, they're concerned. Well, Jesus answers verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, in the dark, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus uses this analogy here of walking in the light versus walking in the darkness at night and how when a person walks in the daytime, they have light and therefore they can see their steps. They don't stumble as easily. But if a person walks around at dark in the night, they have a better chance of tripping and falling and potentially getting hurt. And what Jesus is indicating here is how he was not operating in the darkness of human wisdom or ideas, but he was walking in step with the will of God. He was walking in the light of God and the plans and purposes of God. And the point being that if you're not in step with God and he's not enlightening the way for you, then you probably are going to falter. You're more likely going to stumble and you may end up getting hurt and suffer harm. But if you're walking in the light of the Lord in a matter, it don't matter if there's hurricane force winds. It don't matter if people want to stone you and ruin you and destroy you and hurt you and harm you. If you are letting the Lord enlighten your way and walking in the light in that situation, it may look risky and you may feel vulnerable, but you're not going to stumble even in the toughest of circumstances because the Lord will sustain you. And he will direct you to accomplish the will of God and to be able to walk in his paths and he'll keep you secure and make sure you arrive where you need to ultimately in time because he'll preserve you in the midst of it. Well, verse 11, our story goes on saying, these things Jesus said and then after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, haven't you read health magazines? If he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke this of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, uh, boys, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Again here, notice Jesus is using sort of metaphor in his speech, talking about earthly things but we're using them in a spiritual way. But the disciple is always thinking earthly. They hear this conversation and they're not quite jibing with what Jesus is saying. They hear Jesus say, Lazarus is sleeping. Okay, let's go now. Let's go wake him up. And they say, Lord, we don't want to wake up sick people. That, come on, that's, that's not polite. When somebody's sick, they need a nap. Let them rest. They'll just get better. And, and, and they're not understanding. So Jesus has to say to them, you guys, you're not getting what I'm saying here. He's dead. He's dead. And I'm talking about waking him up from death. And so he has to tell them, listen, Lazarus has died. The truth comes to home for them. Clearly and plainly, Jesus indicates he's already died. They're directly told here, referring to the condition of his death. Metaphorically, Jesus refers to it as sleep. Do you see there? He says, our friend Lazarus sleeps. The idea is he is dead. But I go that I may wake him up. The idea is bring him back to life or reawaken him back to life. Verse 13 wants to then emphasize for us the reality right there. Jesus spoke of his death as if he were sleeping. Now we see this language used metaphorically in the Bible regarding the death of a believer or a follower of Jesus. 
The death of a believer or follower of Jesus in the Bible is often referred to as sleep or being asleep. We find this on different occasions. 1 Thessalonians 4, describing the death of the believer in Christ and those who've already died in Christ, it refers to those as those who have gone asleep or are asleep in the Lord. They've entered into that eternal rest, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which assures us, therefore, if we're one with him in relationship, that we too will experience the power of life after death. It repeatedly in that chapter refers to Christians who have died already in faith in Christ. It refers to them as those who are asleep in Christ. Now follow the analogy here. One characteristic of sleep is that it's just a temporary experience and people reawaken shortly afterwards. So in death, it's not a permanent, or in sleep, excuse me, that's not a permanent state. When some of us sleep, it may sound like that's going to happen. But when we're sleeping, it's a temporary experience. People reawaken from sleep. And in the same way, when a believer in Jesus dies, we enter through the temporary experience of a death process, but it is a brief temporary experience. Our physical body appears like a person is sleeping or resting, yet in death, the spirit or the soul, the eternal part of us in death, instantly is released from the body and goes into the presence of the Lord there in heaven. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in death, the Christian briefly, if you would, falls asleep. The, the, the brief process of, of death, they fall asleep, if you would, but they immediately awaken in the presence of the glory of the Lord. I'm saying that's a good nap, boy. Imagine waking up from that one. You know, whoa! And you're in the presence of the Lord. You awaken in the presence of the glory of God and seeing the face of Jesus. Paul, referring to his death, spoke in this manner. He said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To live as Christ but to die is gain. You see the language of Paul? I want to depart. And he says, I'm not going to depart and just lay in you know, a, a, a state in some soul sleep forever and ever. He says, no, I'm going to depart and I'm going to be with Christ. And he says, that's why to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's far better. Because we understand biblically the moment we die, our spirit, which cannot die because it's the eternal part of us, is instantaneously released from this physical tent, this decaying, dying body, and is instantly in a far better experience in the presence of the Lord because to become absent from the body is present with the Lord. Now, our physical body, this frame, which is left behind on this earth and appears as if it's kind of just resting or sleeping, if you've ever seen the body of a dead person, that too, that body, the Bible says, will one day be resurrected miraculously like Christ's resurrected body and we will experience a glorious eternal resurrected body. And again, if you study 1 Corinthians 15, there's this description of how we will have a glorified body even as Christ has a glorified body. Well, verse 14, Jesus telling them Lazarus is dead, then goes on, look at verse 15 to say, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. The idea is when he died, that you may believe. 
Nevertheless, let us go to him. So Jesus indicates that he was actually, look at that, thankful that he wasn't there in Bethany present at the moment that Lazarus dies. And he says, the reason for this is because I'm, now they don't recognize this, he knows in his mind, I'm going to perform a miracle and raise this guy back from the dead and show my power over life, death, and the grave. And since Jesus knew he was going to do that, he was thankful that he would arrive when he would after Lazarus had died and been in the tomb for a few days so that when he demonstrated his power, the power of God would work in such a way for the sake of the disciples and others to see the glory of God and to see the power of God demonstrated. Notice, part of the work of Jesus was for his followers' sake. It was for their sake, why? To help them spiritually, to strengthen their faith, to let them see more of who the Lord Jesus was. He wanted to further strengthen their belief in him and his timing and his delay, his way of doing things was directly connected, according to Jesus, to what would help his disciples and followers spiritually. Can I say there's a correlation there to our lives? That a lot of times when Jesus is working and doing things in situations, he's operating on a timetable, not just for my convenience or comfort, but he's operating on a timetable of what is best for my sake spiritually because I'm an eternal being. And my spiritual condition, my faith, these are the things that matter most. He wants to help us trust to deepen our faith. This shows us the value Jesus placed upon faith, the importance of that, and that he worked in a way to strengthen and deepen their faith. It also shows us that when we believe, as his disciples and many others would, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that's what brings glory to God. What brings glory to God? When the people of God say, you know what, I don't understand but I'm going to trust through this storm because I believe I'll see the glory of God and I'm going to keep trusting the Lord in the midst of this. That's what brings the glory of God. That which brings Jesus glory. So Jesus says, let us go to him. Verse 16, the text goes on to say, Thomas responded saying to his fellow disciples, well, I guess let us go also with Jesus that we may die with him. Boy, he's optimistic, isn't he? Old Thomas here, he's, not grasping the reality of this, but he expresses his devotion. He boldly and proudly says to all the fellow disciples, come on, guys, let's, let's be men. Let's go up to Judea, and this time when they do stone him, we'll just die together with him. I mean, Thomas didn't have the greatest and most perfect spiritual track record, but he obviously loved the Lord. He was committed. When's the last time you said, let's do what Jesus wants, even if we die? He was committed. He may not have had it all together, but this guy loved the Lord. He was trying to inspire others. Well, verse 17 says, When Jesus came, however, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. What the Bible's telling us there is that it has been four days since Lazarus has been buried. So we understand this as we look at the remainder of the chapter next week to remember when they arrive, it's as if Lazarus had already died. The funeral, in a sense, had happened and he's been buried in the ground for four days. This, this is the stage of this whole scene here. Well, verse 18 says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and therefore many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting 
in the house. So we find here people gathering. This is like an extended funeral service. Typically in this day, the, the funeral memorial type activities lasted for the entirety of a week. They would bury a person quickly the same day because in the hot Mideastern climate, the body would decay quickly. So typically the same day someone died, they were prepared and they were buried. So we find here days later, this is still what we would call a memorial funeral service. The family's grieving and gathering together. Loved ones are there assembling, trying to comfort and support Martha and Mary at the death of their brother, which is what we should do when someone's going through death. They're there consoling and comforting. And Martha, it says, verse 20, when she heard Jesus was on the way, she didn't wait. She went out and met him. But Mary remained sitting in the house. So Again, we'll notice the different temperaments as you study Martha and Mary in the Bible. They're very different human beings. Uh, Martha was the more active type. She's the type A, driven, go do things, be outspoken. Mary was more quiet. She was contemplative. She was sensitive and caring. And, and we notice in the, this story of the death of a loved one, Martha and Mary respond completely differently to the death process. As they're both grieving, as they're both going through a family trial and tragedy, uh, they handle it differently in their own unique way. Martha responds in one way. Mary responds in another way. But this is just a reminder. God's wired us all differently. And because God's wired us all differently, whether it's death, whether it's just a family crisis or some trial or difficulty or hard time, in hard times, we need to give room and latitude and grace and let people respond differently. Because not everybody's going to handle it the same way. We're wired differently. We need to give that grace and patience for different responses among different people to the same hard things and be understanding and patient. So she goes to Jesus in verse 21. Look what she says to him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you sense in Martha's tone here and in her words that she seems honestly to be somewhat, let's be honest, disappointed about how things unfolded. In fact, when you sense what she's saying, it seems that she obviously recognizes that Jesus didn't do what she expected him to do and she's telling him about it. She rushes right out to him. She doesn't stay at home. She needs to get this off her chest. She needs to talk to the Lord about this. She can't hold it in. She doesn't just process. So perhaps she's even almost maybe questioning a bit. Why did Jesus handle this the way that he did? So she runs out to Jesus. Maybe she's unsure, maybe even a little bothered by how he handled the situation. And she says to him, I don't understand, Lord. I'm confused. Why did this happen this way? Why did you delay in, in your response? Why have you taken days to come? And she prays that very honest, if you had only, then this. If you had only done this, Lord, what's she doing? She's just working through her honest questions. She's just processing her own confusion amidst the grief and the hardship. She's just enduring the trial and, and trying to put the pieces together and expressing her own disappointment a little bit and her own frustrations and her own letdowns and her own hurt. And, and I think that's a normal, okay thing to do. I'm glad the Bible records that honestly. 
I think it's a totally natural thing when you go through a hard time and you don't understand, which is typically realistic. And let me say, I think Jesus is able to handle our concerns. I think he's got big shoulders. I can handle what my kids complain. I let them complain once in a while. Sometimes they need to just get things off their heart. They got emotional experience. They don't always understand why. Jesus can understand. And I think we shouldn't have to be ashamed to speak to him or to share our concerns or our confusion or even our disappointments or our questions. Be very frank this morning. We've all prayed before the Lord, if only. Lord, if only. Then this. And Jesus can handle that. So look what happens, however, verse 22. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Look at this. She, in the midst of her disappointment, still does what? Expresses her faith. She's very honest. Though she was genuinely disappointed, though she is somewhat confused, she did not let her disappointment make her get bitter and frustrated. And more than that, it didn't become something that she turned away from the Lord over. She was disappointed. Lord, I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm confused. But she doesn't turn away from the Lord because of it. And sometimes people do that. She shows a great example here of how we ought to respond in our disappointments and hardships. We can express what we believe, but we should never stop believing. We should still say, Lord, I don't understand and I'm confused and it's hard. But Lord, I still believe that you can work in this situation. I still believe, Lord, that the power of God can somehow come to pass. So Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. She says to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she affirms she believes that one day Lazarus will come back from the dead, that he will rise again. But she believes it's not going to happen until the last day. Again, Daniel 12 verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in those times prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, there was a general vague idea that a resurrection would happen. However, there was a limited understanding of resurrection. It was believed that the resurrection would be just sort of one universal event for all of humanity at the exact same time. And this is what Martha is inferring here. Lord, I know one day that event will happen, but that's so far off. That's so far away until that happens. To which Jesus then answers saying to her, verse 25, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So at this point, Jesus reveals to Martha and his disciples more of who he is and what he can offer. She was only looking at the resurrection as an event that would one day happen in the future. And Jesus says to her, no, no, Martha. You're not understanding here. You don't have to wait for an event. Martha, I am the resurrection life. I can bring about that experience at any moment that I desire to because I possess the power over death and life. 
I possess the power over the grave. And I can give that experience to anyone. He makes here his fifth of his I am statements revealing aspects of the deity of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I'm the one who supplies the power and the authority for people to raise from the dead, to have life beyond the grave. That's within me personally. And he's wanting to encourage her here with a promise. He says to her, he who believes in me, though he dies, he's going to live. In other words, he's saying, though we'll one day die physically as a Christian, we're going to continue living on spiritually. It's not the end of our existence. Life is not interrupted at the death of the Christian. We simply lay aside the earthly body, the tent that was temporary, and we enter into the true dimension of eternal life. And we continue living in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. That's why Jesus is saying to her there in verse 26, whoever lives believing in me, really, he says, they technically never die. They just change addresses. They just take a very brief nap and they wake up in a way better experience, more alive than ever before. And how wonderful to realize that that is our hope and that is the reality of any of our loved ones who've died in Christ. You haven't lost them. You know exactly where they're at. It wasn't really goodbye. It was see you soon because they're very much alive. They may have went through the doorway of physical death, but they're very much alive. And Jesus says, this is dependent upon one thing. Two times he emphasizes those who believe in me. That's why he says to Martha here, Martha, the crux of the matter, he challenged her with the question. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Because this experience is for those who believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to inherit that beautiful promise. So she said to him in conclusion, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the God who has come into the world. So she makes this beautiful confession of faith in Jesus, you're the Christ, the Mashiach, the Savior who God said he would send. And I believe in your deity that you are the Son of God who came into this world to save us. Lord, I believe, she says here. Do you believe? She says, yes, I believe it now, Lord. I believe it wholeheartedly for myself. Can I say this morning as we look at this part in the story, sometimes you may not understand why we go through the experiences of life. And it may be really hard. But if those experiences we endure bring us into a deeper experience with the Lord, something far greater has been gained out of that. If it takes, listen, hardship in this life to be the thing that brings a person to saying yes to the Lord, that was all worth it. If that's what it takes to bring a person to a place where they say, Lord, I believe. I believe. Though someone has died today as we did the memorial service this afternoon, if all of those events that have now touched their lives needed to be something that bring them to a place that as they hear the gospel this afternoon, if they say, Lord, I believe now. I believe. Then through the hardship and the death of a loved one, someone gained eternal life. And God has a wonderful way of working these things for his purposes. Shall we stand and pray together?